Hey, I'm Denny Tedesco, the director of the Reckoning Crew, and I am the next guest on On Screen and Beyond. On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. Welcome to On Screen and Beyond, the weekly show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies, remakes, sequels, TV and movie DVD releases, as well as our interview segment with a guest from the movie, TV, or music industry. This is episode 375 of On Screen and Beyond. I am your host, Brian Zemrak, and this week we have a fascinating guest coming your way, Denny Tedesco. He's the director of a film called The Wrecking Crew. Now, this is a documentary about a group of musicians, studio musicians, who played on almost, well, they dominated the 60s and 70s. It's just unbelievable, the songs and the the groups that they played for. They were the ones who were actually playing the music on the hit songs. And we're going to hear all about that. It's a fascinating story, like I said. And Danny is coming up in a few minutes right here on On Screen and Beyond. And if you get a chance, see The Wrecking Crew. That's a great film. All right. Well, we've got a lot of things coming your way this week. Uh, Info on another Sharknado. Also, a movie that's going to be coming your way with 90s boy bands in it. And Mel Gibson's got another movie coming out. It's all coming up next right here on On Screen and Beyond. But right now, let's get right into Remake Madness. Remake Madness, well, Disney is not stopping. They have another animated classic going from animation to live action in the future. The Sword in the Stone now is in the works with Brian Cogman writer and producer on the Game of Thrones writing the script and a remake of 1930s All Quiet on the Western Front is still in the works and it seems like they are moving along with that one we'll keep you informed when we get more information on it and that's it for Remake Madness coming up next on On Screen and Beyond upcoming new movies upcoming new movies well if you are a fan of the 90's boy bands you're going to love this one some of the members of the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and possibly a new kid on the block is going to be fighting zombies in a what they're calling a futuristic Western horror movie as the people behind Sharknado try to come up with new movies. This idea comes from Nick Cotter himself of the Backstreet Boys, so you can blame him for it. <laughs> That's it for... Um, that information, but I've got more. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and Antonio Banderas will star in 33 Dias. Now, this is the story of Pablo Picasso. And Mel Gibson, he's back, probably with a vengeance, in a movie called Bloodfather, as an ex-con reunites with his estranged daughter to save her from drug dealers who are out to kill her. Now, that sounds like an, a Mel Gibson film, if anything does. And that's it for upcoming new movies next on On Screen and Beyond. We'll take you down to Sequel City to find out what's coming your way as far as sequels. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sequel City, it looks like Sharknado 4 may be coming down the line. The director of the Over the Top Films says as long as the Sci-Fi Channel wants them, they're going to make them. And I'm sure there will be plenty of cameos there for all of us. And Godzilla 2 is looking at a June 8, 2018 release. And the Fantastic Four 2 is already in the planning stages, and they're looking to release it in theaters in June of 2017. 
That's it for Sequel City. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, TV on DVD. TV on DVD, October 13th, Bates Motel, Season 3, arrives in stores. And the Royals, Season 1, will be hitting stores on DVD on August 18th. And Batman, the complete third season, slams its way to DVD and Blu-ray on November 3rd. That's it for TV on DVD. Next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming your way as far as movies on DVD? Movies on DVD, it looks like Pitch Perfect 2 will sing its way into stores on September 22nd. And San Andreas will shake things up on Blu-ray and DVD on October 20th. And on September 29th, you can get scared with Poltergeist and Sam Rockwell on DVD and Blu-ray. And that's it for Movies on DVD. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, it's TV and Entertainment Time. TV and Entertainment Time, CBS is making a new show called Brain Dead. Now, this is a comedy thriller about a Washington, D.C. staffer who learns that aliens are eating the brains of congressmen. So that explains a lot. Anyways, <laughs> it's uh, this is coming from the creators of The Good Wife. And let's see, Michael Chiklis will be joining the cast of Gotham as Captain Nathaniel Barnes. It's a good show. I hope he'll he'll be a good addition to that one. And that's it for TV and Entertainment Time. Next on On Screen and Beyond, it's Celebrity Birthdays. We baked you a birthday cake. If you get a tummy ache and you moan and groan and woe, don't forget we told you so. Happy birthday! Happy birthday! <laughs> Celebrity Birthdays on August 2nd, Kevin Smith turns 45. And it looks like uh, Eddie Munster, Butch Patrick, past guest here at On Screen and Beyond, turns 62. August 3rd, Tony Bennett turns 89 years old, and Martin Sheen turns 75. August 4th, Richard Belzer turns 71. August 5th, it looks like Lonnie Anderson turns 70. August 6th, Catherine Hicks turns 64. And on August 7th, Charlize Theron turns 40, and David Duchovny turns 55. And on August 8th, Dustin Hoffman turns 78. Connie Stevens, past guest here at On Screen and Beyond, turns 77. Donnie Most, past guest here at On Screen and Beyond, turns 62. And Larry Wilcox, past guest here at On Screen and Beyond, turns 68 years old. That's it for celebrity birthdays. As far as listener birthdays, August 4th, it looks like Carol D. of Grand Junction, Colorado, turns 44 years old. And if you, friend, or a relative are going to be having a birthday, send the information to me at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com, and we will celebrate with you and everybody else here who listens to On Screen and Beyond. will wish you a very happy birthday. So happy birthday to all of you, and we wish that uh, you all have a great day. Well, what do you say? It's time. Denny Tedesco is coming in here. His father was Tommy Tedesco, and he was part of a group of uh, studio musicians who played hit after hit after hit. The groups didn't play the music on the albums. The Wrecking Crew did. He's going to let us in all of that information, who the Wrecking Crew are, what the Wrecking Crew are or were, and uh, we'll give you a lot of information about uh, some of the songs they played. You're going to be amazed. This is a great story. Denny Tedesco is next right here on On Screen and Beyond. Today on On Screen and Beyond, our guest is the director of the documentary, The Wrecking Crew. It's a film about a group of studio musicians who over the years played the music for many of the top hits from groups including Tommy Rowe, The Monkees, The Beach Boys, Johnny Rivers, The Birds, Sonny and Shea, The Association, and many, many others. It's Denny Tedesco. Denny, welcome to On Screen and Beyond. Oh, thank you. How are you? Great. How are you doing, Denny? I'm really well. Now, Danny, before we get into too much here, 
let everybody know what or who the Wrecking Crew was. I found this story just fascinating. Sure. Well, the Wrecking Crew is just a nickname for a group of session musicians from uh, the 60s and 70s that played in Los Angeles. They were recording for the Beach Boys, Sinatra, Jan and Dean, all those names you were talking about earlier, they were part of that in the 60s. Basically, the label said, you know what, we want uh, session musicians to make sure we get these tracks done, so they would send them in. Many times, there were no bands, and they would create bands. Um, so that's what it was. And later, the nickname came because one of the guys said they overheard uh, the older guys, you know, the more established musicians, saying, these guys are going to wreck the business playing this rock and roll. And and they didn't wreck the business. They just pushed it to another another level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, like I say, I was, I was looking. Oh, for, and tell everybody where they can look for information about the Wrecking Crew. What's your, sure. your website? Uh, well, it's right now it's on Access TV, I think, for a couple of weeks. And then mm-hmm. it goes to Netflix uh, at the end of the month. But the DVD, which is, uh, you could either buy it on Amazon or on our website at WreckingCrewFilm.com, that has six and a half hours of extras. So in the film itself, we have Brian Wilson, Cher, Nancy Sinatra, Roger McGuinn, Herb Alpert, and of course the guys themselves, the Wrecking Crew guys, which is uh, Leon Russell and Glenn Campbell and Hal Blaine and Carol Kay. And my dad was one of them, and that's what the whole story started from, was my dad, Tommy Tedesco. Mm -hmm. Um, But basically what happened was in 1996, my dad, Tommy, was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and I was, it was, they said, he's got a year. And I was like, oh, you know, it was heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. I always wanted to tell that story about him and his friends, so I started filming him. And I got together friends. I was in the film business, and that's where I started, 1996. But until last year, we couldn't sell the film because we had to pay off 110 songs that are in the movie. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, I know that's a big part of what costs for movies when when you're doing, especially when you're doing hit songs like that. That must have been incredible. Well, you know, it, people always go, they tried to make a, it's funny, because some of the press tried to make a fight between me and the record labels, like me against Goliath, you know, David and Goliath. Mm-hmm. And the truth was, it wasn't so much, you know, that I wasn't getting the rights or being able to pay for it. It was, I couldn't get investors to help me because there was so much music. You know, there's like 110 songs and you you know, you need them. You mm-hmm. saw them. Right. You need to tell that story with the quantity. And they weren't killing me with the amount per song. What it was was an investor didn't want to touch it because, hey, a music documentary is only going to make this much. Yeah. But this is going to cost us this much. And everybody stayed away from me from 2008 when we finally went out. We went on our own basically all the way through. Someone asked me, well, who were the angels? you know, that helped you. I said, well, there was a company called Visa, Wells Fargo, <laughs> Countrywide. They were very sweet until they stopped me. They cut me off. <laughs> I mean, it was really, but until we, then we started taking donate. We went into the film festivals in 2008, did extremely well, amazing reviews, but we couldn't release it. And then 2010 came and we realized there's no way of releasing this film unless we get to zero. So that's when I ended up going to donations. We went through a 501c. People would donate. And sometimes it was $10. Sometimes it was $1,000. And it didn't matter. We just kept going. Mm-hmm. And all as money came f- coming through the years, I would just keep paying off uh, a publisher or a, a, a label and just keep going. And then we went into Kickstarter to pay off $200,000 towards the end, which went right to the musicians themselves, wow. to the union. Which was great. It was nothing better than paying off the musicians, you know, letting them get a piece of it. Right, well. yeah. And um, that's how we got it released, with the help of everybody around the world, actually. Yeah. Now, you did you use any footage of the people you interviewed, or was this all stuff that you filmed yourself? I mean, you had Sonny, you know, uh, Cher was on there. And, and, uh, yeah, no, I filmed everything. Dick we Clark. Every and... of it, you know, other than stock footage, you know, that you know from the 19th Right, yeah. Yeah. Except even when I I say that, even my, but there's that footage of my father in 1953. My mom shot that. 
Mm-hmm. So in a sense, that it does go back that far back. Um, no, all the all the we did all those interviews, and we just kept storing not storing them, but you know, holding them, holding them until we could. Basically, in 2006, my wife said, we just made the most expensive home movie ever, and we have nothing to show for it. I mean, all we had was footage, all those interviews, Brian Wilson, Cher, uh, Herb Alpert, yes. you know, all these people. And that's when we realized, okay, well, unless you're going to build it, you have no idea. You could talk all you want about it, but they need to see it to sell it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I have to tell everybody that I have seen this, and it is a fantastic film. If, if you're a music lover uh, or a historian even, uh, this is just a film that you really want to see because it's just, there's so many songs, and it's, it's just... Mind-blowing. Yeah, I mean, to imagine that, you know, I mean, you know a group has a lot of hits sometimes, but... Yeah. These are the people who were playing the hits for these people, and it, it yeah. just—it's—it's it's just like you say, it's mind blowing. It, it really is, and, it's, and, it, and I realized watching this film. I've watched this hundreds of times, and I think that was the frustrating part for me. Was in two thousand eight, and ten, and twelve, and thirteen—all these years watching this film play with audiences around the world, and not having a distribution deal. And I kept saying, and and my thing was, listen. Yes, the film's, uh, film may be a great film, may be an okay film, it doesn't matter. What's great is that music. So automatically you have 50% of the story told before they even walk into that door to watch it on in a theater. Mm-hmm. They know the music. Definitely. So, and then you, you, you peel back the fact that, oh, they didn't know this or they didn't know that, and then they start, the audience starts getting into it. And it was, but I'm very proud that this film got out finally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. After Nineteen years. Yeah. And and I had when I had first contacted you in the email, I had mentioned that several of the people who have been on the show here have uh, you know had hits that the Wrecking Crew played for, and you know one of them was Bill Medley we had on the show yeah. uh, last year, I think it was, and uh, you know I, I had no idea that it was the Wrecking Crew that had done this, and then Peter Tork of the Monkees, you know they yeah. did some of their music, and it's just so fascinating to see and. and in the in the the movie itself, that story that um, uh, Carol was talking about for the beat goes on, right. how she came up with that that beginning start of it. It was just it's just you know I mean it's musical history. There's no doubt about it. No, yeah, exactly. In, in the, you talk about Bill Medley, the music's in the film. The drag was I couldn't get Bill Medley in the film itself because I had so much material. He made it. We have a great stories about Bill Medley is on the outtakes. Wow! So, the out, so Bill, you know, on the outtakes is Bill Medley, Richard Carpenter, uh, Petula Clark. Petula's been on the show, yeah. Wire, yeah. Michael Nesmith of the Monkees. I just kept going, and I just never stopped interviewing people. Wow! I mean, but, I mean, you gotta have a wrecking crew too. <laughs> I, you know what? I'm just gonna keep feeding this stuff out. I can't go. I can't do it again. I'll, I'll, it'll be there. I'll keep feeding it to the public. But Peter Tork and Michael Nesmith and Mickey Dolenz, you know, all were interviewed. And, and Peter and uh, Michael, um, Peter and um, Mickey are in the film. Mm-hmm. Michael didn't come in until the last week before I had to turn in the outtakes. He finally said yes. And I got to say, all those guys were so honest and respectful to those session musicians. I think you know a lot of honesty comes out when later in in life mm-hmm. you realize how important things were, or how, maybe how unimportant things were. You know what I mean? Yeah. So no one had any anything to hide. No one had anything to gripe about. You know. Yeah. It was really it was real honesty from all the folks. Wow. Now, obviously, because of your father, uh, this is something that you wanted to do to make this film uh, with all the the stuff that you had uh and now are you musically inclined like your father was i am musically inclined in my head <laughs> That's about it. my biggest problem is i've never practiced and i still don't practice and until i practice i will never be able to play something uh, my father used to say you get lucky playing golf you might hit a ball it might go 300 yards but you don't get lucky just playing guitar or you know an instrument you got to practice at it I'm determined. I'm, you know, I'm 54, but I will. It's on. It's funny because I got to take my, 
young child right now to uh, uh, his piano lesson. So mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I'm thinking about taking one myself. Jeez. Now, so you don't play any instruments, or or just? No, I quit. I quit saxophone. I quit piano. I quit guitar. I quit accordion. You name it, I could have. I quit it. So <laughs> I just, you know, if, if some, I said to someone, if I put twenty five percent of the effort into an instrument, or ten percent of effort into the instrument as I put into this film over nineteen years, I'd be a hell of a player. <laughs> and he said, Yeah, but you'd be out of work like the rest of us musicians. So right. <laughs> But you know, I you know I'm just uh, musicians. I you know growing up with with a musician like my father, but growing up with all musicians around, not in my family but around me, the respect I have for anybody that can take an instrument and pick it up and play it. I don't care if you're professional or not. I admire that because you you know you you worked at it. Right. So I'm envy of it. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Now, but but I mean, the determination that you had to make this documentary is that takes a lot too. Yeah, and I think you know it's funny because to go back to the last comment about quitting instruments, I think that was part of my motivation not to quit on this. It was one of those psychological things where you know I've quit everything. I don't want this to be on the list of things I quit. You know, and I put so much effort and so much money into that. You know, where you you cross a line. As someone said, you cross that line, is like there's no turning back. Well, I crossed that line in 2006, and that's why we had to finish it. Then I crossed the line again in 2010. Well, what do we do now? We have a great film that's getting all these reviews and awards. Mm-hmm. But until you sell it, or may hopefully you'll make some money back on it, I couldn't stop. I had to keep going and hopefully pay this, this off. Yeah, And that's what we did, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the motivation for me was i just didn't want to quit on this yeah yeah well it's it like you say if people want to catch it uh they can catch it on access tv but you know i gotta get a copy because <laughs> this this is this is something i'm gonna watch over and over because it's it's just so much well, history in there and people don't realize what the, the, why does maybe we didn't say it at the beginning the reason these guys were really used is because Record companies at the beginning of rock and roll at this time in 1960 in L.A. There's only like five years of history of rock and roll, so it's still at the infancy. So bands that are coming through, they're really young, and if you go into a studio, it's going to cost money. So if they were signed to a label, label doesn't want to spend money on a studio when there's only one track. So you can't you can't mess around. So they would make sure that they backed themselves up. They found a good song and a good you know maybe a singer. And they hired these guys. Glenn Campbell, who was one of the session players at the time, he said, I was playing with Michael Jordan in this room. He says, everybody in the room was Michael Jordan, though. He says, anybody, if you, you had a three-hour session to do three or four songs, if you blew it, you blew it for everybody because you have to start all over. Right. So that's why they were so quick and so, you know, they could knock out... In the movie, one of the guys says, Earl Palmer says, at Liberty Records, we were doing an album a day. You know, it might be for Vicky Carr, it might be for Bobby V, it might be for Janet Dean, but they were knocking this stuff out, an album a day for five, six weeks. And radio pushed the industry. Once Top 40 started, it's like, ooh, what's that? All right, let's get another one in the Top 40. Right. Let's get product out there. Let's sell the product. And so they kind of fed off each other. So that's why these guys were so busy, because now it's like a factory. Let's try something new. Let's try this. There were times. All right, sure, they did the Beach Boys. They didn't do the early Beach Boy albums, like the first few. But once Brian realized, and you'll see this in Love and Mercy, the movie that's out now, Brian did not want to go on the road. He hated it. So once he started staying on the in, on, in the studio where he could really create, he used these guys, like in Pet Sounds. And he could just take it wherever he wanted because the guys are going to sit there and do whatever Brian wants. They, he pays them. Right. If he had asked Mike Love or the guys in the band to hang out for days on end, they might, you know, they would never be that respectful. Mm-hmm. You know, it's family. You right. Family is not always the easiest to work with. Right. <laughs> you know, um, but so that's how it went. And then, so those guys would be working for the Beach Boys in Sinatra. You know, they would do up. Um, Strangers in the Night, which mm-hmm. I just found out recently through Nancy that he hated the f- a song. Really? He hated that song. 
It was given to him by Jimmy uh, Bowen. They found the song, who produced it, and they were kind of like convinced him to do it, and so he did it. And, he, and when he starts scatting dooby dooby doo and all that, he forgot the lyrics at that point, supposedly. <laughs> so they, so one of the guys said, what do you think? And the other one said, well, it's either going to be the greatest hit or the greatest bomb. And it became one of the greatest hits. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. You know? And you know, and that went on for years. And Nancy Sinatra, obviously, boots were made for walking. And mm-hmm. um, and then with the, Phil Spector's Wall of Sound, they were Phil Spector's Wall of Sound out here. They and Phil was so uh, superstitious; he never changed. He always had the same guys. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, with the Ronettes and then with Bill Medley. Yeah, the Crystals. Yeah, I mean, he had like twenty-one straight gold albums. Just. You know, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these people reuse them every single time. Like Herb Albert used them an awful lot, didn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah. Herb, I mean, Herb, you know, using them from bar mitzvahs on. <laughs> <laughs> they all, you know, started early. And then he did, T- you know, Tijuana Brass. He did The Lonely Bowl. And he did a demo for that. And it became a huge hit. And as one of the guys in the movie said, you know, how, uh, how Herb went back after it became a hit, paid the fine to the union because it was a hit and it was a demo, which was always illegal, and paid all the guys their fee. And that started A&M Records from that point on. Mm-hmm. You know, then he did T- you know, Tijuana Brass, which were the guys, and then Bahama Rimba Band came out and, and just went on forever. Um, then Fit Dimension, you had those guys, you know, the Mamas and Papas. Right. And the Birds, Mr. Tambourine Man was a perfect example of the business working against the band, in a sense. And I say that with respect for everyone. But Terry Melcher was the producer of the Birds. He got the job through Columbia Records, and he said to the guys, guys, I need to get in, I need to get out. I need to. I have a budget. Here's the song. We'll do Mr. Tambourine Man. I'll have Roger McGuinn sing and play the lead. You guys could do the backup on the, on the singing. And they were very upset and didn't even come in for the session. And as Roger McGuinn said, we did that A side and the B side in three hours. Now, he said, when we did Turn, 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 another number one hit with the band, it took 77 takes. Wow. Now, you know, there's nothing wrong with Turn, Turn, Turn. It's a great song. Mm -hmm. You know, it's still a number one hit, but the fact is it was about a business. You had to make sure you got in and get out. out. Yeah. Or you don't get a second chance to get another recording. Jeez, that's amazing. Yeah. Now, to, let's talk a little bit about your father, because uh, sure. he wasn't just one of the session players. I mean, he was. He was one of the session players. But right. a lot of people will recognize him for some of the songs that, uh, if they're TV and music lovers who are listening to our show, of course, uh, they'll recognize some of his work. I understand he was the uh, the guitar in the Bonanza theme. Yep, he was a guitar on Bonanza. He was guitar on uh, Green Acres, uh, Batman. I'm thinking of guitar leads. And then there was uh, later he says that, and then he says that god awful wah wah on uh, Three's Company. The do 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 wah 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 wah. Mm-hmm. So he used to joke about that, but that's what he did. He went to work like any other dad. The only difference is he had his tools in the trunk were a. Uh, classical guitar, a telecaster, a banjo, a mandolin, a 12-string, and that's in an amp. Wow. And he would go and then, you know, and move. Then he got very busy in movies and TV throughout the 70s and 80s. And uh, that's where his career took him after the uh, rock and roll days. <laughs> Jeez. So, I mean, there's a lot of great music there, you know, just from TV shows and movies. I mean, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, Someone asked him, what would you want to be remembered for? And he basically said, listen, any one of those ten guitar players in the day could have done any one of those TV shows that we were doing, you know, the, you know, uh, Batman and all that stuff, you know, with the Telecaster. He said, but when John Williams or James Horner, who just recently passed, would ask you to hold for two weeks and months ahead for a certain movie call, that's when he knew he made it. Right, yeah. Because they're asking for Tommy Tedesco. They're not asking for a guitar player. And there's nothing big, bigger thrill than John Williams holding you for a job. Jeez, mm, yeah. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. That is incredible. Another thing that I notice is uh, that they also, the Wrecking Crew 
did the music for Mission Impossible. Yeah, well, they did all those TV shows. I mean, they were intermixed with, you know, it's not the same guys. That's the other thing we should make sure everybody knows. It's not like 10 guys, 20 guys. It's a mixture of people. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the guys that could go to TV did go to TV, like my dad or or Carol or uh, Earl Palmer. They did a lot of work in TV as well. Um, but it was a mixture. Sometimes you would have Earl Palmer on drums. Sometimes it was Hal Blaine. On bass, you might have Carol Kay, or you might have Joe Osborne. There were like mixture of maybe three or four, five bass players, maybe six, seven guitar players, you know. And it was more of it was more of a time period of what was going on, you know. In L.A., you had so much infrastructure because of the movie studios and the recording studios. So you had a lot of people to choose from, but these were the core players that were doing the rock and roll stuff. But there were, you know, a few hundred people doing the movies and stuff. Mm -hmm. and some of these guys crossed over. And like my father, he was able to go all the way into the early 90s. Yeah. Well, I was surprised in the film where they said how many people were in the wrecking crew, and then everybody had a different answer. <laughs> exactly. Because it, you know why? Because you know what? Who cares? That's right. what I always... In the end, it's, it's like, you know, it wasn't like... Beatles. Beatles were four guys. Right. You know, Stones, there were those guys. And and it, this was more of a time period. And, you know, in, in it was a small group. Even if you said 20, it's a small group of oh, yeah. musicians that have been doing three or four dates a day. Yeah. In 67 is the heyday. And the only reason we know that is because of the contracts with the union when one of the guys said, your father, O. Palmer, and Hal Blaine had the most contracts in the 400s each, which means if there's 365 days and they're doing 400-something dates, that means they're doing more than a couple a day. Wow. Don't forget they have maybe a weekend off, they have Christmas, maybe they took vacation off, so they're, they got busy. And you could see that in their workbooks. You know, it was a work ethic mm -hmm. also. Yeah, definitely. You didn't turn anything down. You only turned it down if you were too busy to say yes. Yeah. was the motto. Um, you couldn't tell how busy you were by the amount of work you did, but by the amount of work you turned down. Right. Jeez. You know, and my father had was the king of of uh, the business when it came to BS. I mean, he was <laughs> really good at it. And he, you know, at this, he was smart. He was a smart businessman. He would tell his answering service. If we were on vacation, the answering service tell him, you know, he would tell them, "I'm not available this week," meaning I'm working, because you don't want the guy calling to find out you're on vacation. You want to find out that he's working. Gosh, I missed him again. Right? Yeah. yeah. You know, um, when we were in the '60s, we had three phone lines in the house that were on rotary, because it was all about not missing a job. Yeah. Because if one of the kids had. You know, we were on the phone messing around, and their job was missed because we had a busy signal. Oh, my God, can you imagine? It just blew. <laughs> Jeez. So it was very conscious of which, you know, working. Yeah. Now, a lot of the, uh, I mean, of course, everybody who was in the wrecking crew was obviously talented. I mean, it's, it's extremely talented. But a lot of them, uh, or, or I shouldn't say a lot of them, but some of them continued on to have either solo hits or, or sure. be in bands like uh, Glenn Campbell Glenn you Campbell. mentioned. Yeah, Glenn Campbell obviously, is the obvious. Right. He went on, and then Leon Russell. Yes. And uh, Larry Nectar went on to work with the birds, with, with Bread. Mm -hmm. But uh, in terms of solo, it's Leon and uh, Glenn. You know, and my father said Glenn was the best rock and roll guitarist he sat next to, and he couldn't read a note. Really? Not read a note to help save his life. And basically, he'd, he'd, they'd run through it, and Glenn would listen. And you have any questions, you'd ask the other guitar player or whatever, and they'd, you know, and just let him loose. Uh -huh. um, Don Randy said something to me recently, the piano player in the, in the group. He said, if you would have heard, because, you know, a lot of times they would do these sessions, these tracking sessions, and, you know, maybe for another um, vocalist or for a demo or whatever, and they said, Glenn, would you sing the lyrics for us so we could, you know, use it, you know, for the, as a, you know, tracking. And he said, Glenn was better than most of them, even with the singing. Could you imagine some of the hits that came out with other people? Glenn sang the demo. Jeez. 
you know, who knows? Yeah. And Leon Russell, another great line from Leon Russell in the film. I don't think it's in the film, but he was telling me, um, I think it's in the outtakes. He said, I asked him, did you ever get bored, Leon? He says, oh, and, you know, he's so salty. He says, all the time. Because <laughs> I couldn't stand that, you know, bleep, bleep, bleep. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, uh, you know, after a while, you do 10 takes of the same thing. You've memorized it in your head. And I start rewriting, I start writing lyrics to the song in my head. So you imagine the songs that Liam would have written the lyrics to that he was just a, you know, a sideman on. Right, yeah. Handle, you know, he he was hilarious to me. You know, and then, you know, Cher was 16 when she was doing this stuff. She was just a backup singer. She was Sonny, Sonny Bono's girlfriend, who was a runner for Phil Spector, his gopher. And he and Phil would just throw her in the studio, and just say, you know, sing in the background. Mm-hmm. And Larry Levine, the um, the um, the engineer, said we used to have to push Cher way back because she had such a voice that was so like, like you could hear her. So you had to push her further back from the mic, so she wasn't so, you know, clear. Right. Yeah. It sounds like her record cut, <laughs> cut right through it, so you had to make sure she wasn't cut through. Wow. Jeez. It, now, did a lot of the outtakes? Uh, end up in the extra six hours you said that's in the oh, DVD? Oh, yeah, yeah that, that's exactly what the outtakes are. Ah, okay. Um, I mean, there's more than that, and I'm still trying, literally trying to get through it. Um, I was so fortunate Magnolia Pictures let me do the second DVD because they said at the beginning, they said, oh, well, we're okay with just one DVD and a few extras, and I said, I've worked way too long on this just for a few extras. I said, I want, I'm trying to do the best of the guitar players, the best of the engineers best of the artist best of the producers arrangers you know you know so i made sure that they and they i think they realized how important it was once they start start to see the response from the actual film around the world you know audiences flipping out so they said okay go for it wow and like I say, you've done a great job with this. I got to you know congratulate you on it because it is such a fascinating film. And like I said earlier, anybody who is into music of the '60s, '70s, that time period, uh, it's just it it just brings back so much memories. Just listening to the music and and hearing these people talk about what went on behind the scenes, it's just a fascinating. Yeah, I, and I'm I was so lucky to be at the right place at the right time. You know. Um, What's interesting, watching, like I said earlier, watching this with the audiences around the world, everybody's got a different experience because every song means something to, to someone else differently. It's a bookmark mm-hmm. in their life. Exactly, so yeah. So I'm 54. My older brother was 64. So, you know, a Beach Boys song meant a lot more to him from 1964 than it did for me. And, you know, we're maybe Partridge family. Yes, when yeah. I can't, you know, it was my song in 1970 or whatever it was. And yeah. Now I, I got I got to ask you of all the songs that are listed uh, of that were in by the uh, the Wrecking Crew is there any one that is your favorite? Oh God, you know no I, I, I honestly can't say yes or no on it. I the ones I pick, you know when I throw it when I you know throw them on the soundtrack, like at the credits, you know I have someone someone you know people don't walk out on the credits on this one. Because I have 11, 12 songs on there. Wow. And they, so they sit there and they start listening and they go, oh, there's more. And they keep waiting. And that was my opportunity to play the ones that I wanted to show off my dad. Mm-hmm. You know, because one of them was Elvis Presley with Memories, the comeback special. And it's just my dad and the Spanish guitar. Um, but, you know, things when I hear things like, you know... Um, Stone Soul Picnic by the Fit Dimension. Great song. You know, yeah. I love that song. Yeah, and it kills me every time I hear it. And and uh, be my baby. And no, it's hard. It's really hard. I know. I, I, if you ask me, I, I couldn't tell you what would. I mean, because every one, you know, I mean, this goes a little little cornier side, but the Chipmunk song theme song is. Well, you, it's so funny you said that. All right, my mind was spinning when you said that. Exactly. <laughs> one of the things is people said, well. When they were trying to say, why didn't you know before the film was made, or they said, why didn't you know, why don't you just pick twenty songs, you know, instead of a hundred songs? Mm-hmm. I said the difference is this: if I gave you these artists, Stevie Wonder, Supremes, uh, Temptations, Smokey Robinson, you know it's Motown. I said, but what do you have when you have 
Beach Boys, Frank Sinatra, The Birds, Fifth Dimension, and The Chipmunks. Right. It it's, it's covers everything. <laughs> yeah. And you really have, and I always say you got to go with quantity on this. That's the story. Is It's about a factory. These guys were working in a factory making product and realize, yes, we all have, we make Rolls Royces some days and we make a Pinto the next. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people ask, should they have been paid more? My father said, absolutely not. He said, you know, yeah, he would love to if you want to give him more money. But he, he listen, he said, I, you know, I go to work, I made hundreds of hits, but we made thousands of bombs. Mm-hmm. We never gave anybody the money back. Yeah, that's yeah. the luck of the draw for you and I. Right. Yeah, you know, we're going to try our best to get you here, but it doesn't mean it's a hundred percent. But you get your best chance with us, probably. And that's not what he would have said. But you know what I mean? Yeah. You have your best chance by doing it. But he had a very sensible uh, thought. You know, um, what was the other song oh, that uh, people? I remember a friend of mine said, "Oh, I hate that song," and now he fell in love with it. And that was um, Love Will Keep Us Together. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, Captain with, um, Tennille. Captain Tennille. Now, it's a wacky, very popish song, but it was the last song that Hal Blaine did his record of the year with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when I said the Chipmunks theme song, I wasn't putting it down because I liked that oh, song. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> but it means a lot to you as a kid, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I still remember, I still have that album. Yeah, still, yeah. You know, and. It, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah, and, and and I'm looking at Johnny Angel. I mean, that what a great song that was, yeah. and and uh, the Hawaii Five O theme song. Well, the Hawaii Five O theme song. Here's the story on that. That's not the. That's yes. There's the TV show, but what happened with the Ventures? Joe Saracino, who's the producer of the Ventures, and he did the Marquettes and the Routers and the T Bones. Those other three bands were fake bands, by the way. We'll talk about that later. But when he did the Ventures, he had to, said to them. Why don't we do Hawaii Five O? And so he brought them in to do Hawaii Five O. But Ventures were a band that did their own music. They would rehearse in their, you know, in their garage, and they were a garage band. They come in and do it, knock it out. Amazing musicians, rock and roll. That was their thing. But when you're given music to play now, that's different. It's like saying speak French when you don't speak any. Mm-hmm. And so he had he had the horns there, and he had. Uh, Johnny Garen was on drums, and he had the guys come in, but the guy, Nucky, couldn't play, supposedly play that lead part. So he called my father in to come and do the lead, and my father says, what do you want, Joe? And my father was a, like I said, he was a, what can we say on this podcast? <laughs> you can say anything you want. <laughs> can you say he was, my father was a ball buster? You can say, hey, and, I'll tell you, Petula Clark <laughs> dropped the F-bomb here, so. Oh, there you go. That's great. <laughs> Which surprised me of all the people. <laughs> yes, Exactly. Um, so, I mean, he, when he had Joe, he had Joe, cause Joe's calling from, from, uh, the street, Joe, Tommy, can you come down? No. Well, I, what do you want, Joe? I took the day off. He said, I, I'll send you music. Joe, don't send me the music. And he sends music over. And my father, Joe said the guy, the, the messenger came back with the music torn up. And so my father comes in later to do this piece. And he, and Joe Saracino says, your father comes in to play Hawaii Five-0 lead, and he just puts it behind his head and plays it, it just to throw it in his face, meaning Joe's face. Mm-hmm. Because it was, it, it, it's very hard if you don't read music. You can't, but for someone like my father, that's what he did all day long. Right, yeah. You know, and that's the thing is, they don't care. They just, they, you know, my dad does it. He's given a piece of music, plays it, next plays it, next plays it. Someone says, Sometimes he was on something he didn't even know because he forgot. Because don't forget, he's only played it maybe three or four times that day. Yeah. And and then did the recording and moved on. Yeah. Uh-huh. He never. He, they didn't record hits. They record songs that became hits. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a distance between the point when they did it and the point they, you know. So the perfect example was up, up and away. Jimmy Webb gave my father a nice bracelet charm with a little Grammy on it when it won the Grammy. And he said, and my father said, what was this for? He says, it was for the a song we did with Fifth Dimension called Up, Up, and Away last year. It won the record of the year. He went, oh, okay. Didn't even know it. <laughs> it but, you know, and you go, how did you not know that? When you listen to it, and I hear him all the way through it, you know, with his, his signatures playing. But he wasn't listening to music, my dad. He went to work. He didn't come home. He didn't play. 
He didn't practice. He didn't need to. We didn't. Have, people think, oh, he must have had a hoot nanny at home, you know, where everybody's singing. No, no, no. Dad, he didn't turn on music. He didn't listen to music. He came home. He either played cards, went golfing, or played with us and hung out with us. But that was, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like the plumber who, you know, doesn't do plumbing at home. Exactly. <laughs> that's it's, exactly. I'm going to use that next time. That's hilarious. <laughs> but that's so true. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but that's exactly, you just nailed it, nailed it. Because I, ne- I always heard that, but now you're right. You put it in that perspective, that's exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, you know, it wasn't until 1970s did I see my dad play guitar. Because, I, you know, I didn't go to work with him. That right, my yeah. Mother's, that's what my mom said. He said, my father said exact words for I said, Mom, did you ever go to the studios with Dad or, you know, clubs? She goes, No. He said, a plumber doesn't take his wife to work. <laughs> True. Yeah. So there goes the plumber again. He's always being used. Yeah. Huh. Jeez. Yeah, it's it's just a fascinating story, and I think everybody should go out and get that because it uh, it's not something you would just want to watch once. It, just to get the the full effect of the movie, you want to see it over and over and over. And, 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 and on the DVD, you said there's the outtakes, the Blu-ray, whatever, uh, yeah. It's going to be, you know, that's going to be even as good of, of the of what's in the film itself. It's yeah, it's so funny because I just wish I had more time and more money mm-hmm. to keep on going. And it was like to the end, I'm still licensing songs for the DVD, and I'm thinking my wife's going to kill me, <laughs> you know. And I just felt like this is it, guys. I'm not doing it again. Let's just go out with a bang. Yeah, let's just put it all on there and see where it lands and i'm lucky it's landing in the right places so yeah well that's one thing i, I find with filmmakers and, and you know it's it's just one of those things where it's never done you could continue this your your, your movie your documentary whatever yeah. you know because it's you, you always say well i can change this and it'll be better if i do this and, and it just yeah. keeps going on and on i find a lot of directors are like that you know for independence because naturally with the 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 blockbuster ones, the studio yeah, saying, "Hey, <laughs> you don't have a choice." But with independence, it's it's just you know. You know, it's funny. I was very fortunate because there is a big time lapse between the point I was was doing festivals to the point of release here. Mm-hmm. Um, the only I did change a few things, but only very little. When the first cut, when I say change, I added Peter Tork and Al Jardine to after two thousand eight because I was at a festival and they came and they played after the festival with the uh, with the guys the regular wow. guys so i quickly made sure i got them on tape or a film and then i added them and then um the last six months before i got a release i found footage of the beach boys and the guys in the studio i found the mamas and papas footage of the guys in the studio and finally got the the cherry on top was leon russell Jeez. He came in at the end. So anybody that saw it before this year, basically, you know, Leon Russell was in it. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Well, Denny, uh, I'd like to finish up with two final questions for you. Sure. Uh, this takes us away from your your directing and, and your, your love of the Wrecking Crew movie and everything. Uh, but when you sit back and relax, what are your favorite TV shows now and of the past? And what's your favorite movies now and of the past? And I'll also throw in, what's your favorite music now and of the past? Oh, that's a really good question. Okay. All right. Um, favorite TV shows now. Can I give more than one or two? Oh, sure, yeah. Okay. Uh, it's funny because I, I started the binge watch thing, you know, that mm-hmm. disease called binge watch. Yep. And I love it because, you know, the first thing I started was uh, Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. So that killed me. And then, um, you know, um, like shows like Blackish, uh, Modern Family, uh, Last Man on Earth, I'm loving, which I found and find out now is my uh, editor, Claire Scanlon, is directing some of those shows, which is great. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so that, and um, in terms of music, you know, right now it's funny because I have my kids. My kids are 16 and uh, um, 10. So, you know, a lot of stuff, obviously, I can't stand. But, you know, um, Pharrell and um, oh, who's the other one that uh, I can't think of? But, uh, uh, is it, hold on, what's it? Uh, oh, God, help me. I'm going blank in my old age. I'm only 54. <laughs> hold on one sec. Uh, Smith. 
from London. Uh, oh, Sam Smith? Sam Smith. Yeah. You know, loving him. Um, you know, and there's, it's just, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm just, you know, it's really interesting. And the movies of the past, you know, I, I still love, uh, you know, I watched the other day, what was the conversation? You know, it just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but then again, I love Caddyshack and my wife doesn't. So what can I tell you? <laughs> I've had a couple people from Caddyshack on the show. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity. Well, Denny, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. This is a fascinating film. Everybody should go get and uh, watch The Wrecking Crew because it, it is a piece of musical history. And it's, it's something that, you know, I thank you for doing. Thank you. And uh, and hopefully I'll have another film shortly, and we could talk again. And a big thank you going out to Denny Tedesco for joining us here at On Screen and Beyond to let us know about The Wrecking Crew. Of course, like I said, he was the director of the film. And if you get a chance, it's on Access now, but uh, you can also pick up the DVD, which uh, is loaded, he said, with six hours of more information from the people who did these songs and some of the groups and everybody that was involved with it uh, you, you just got to get that because it's really a great documentary you want to check it out it's called the wrecking crew and let's see here that's it that's about it for this week at on screen and beyond next week we got another fascinating guest coming your way and uh it looks like season nine is going to be starting up pretty soon boy it just seems to be flying by and uh, it's uh, more fun, more fun listening to all these people who are joining us here at On Screen and Beyond. We thank them for joining us and sharing their time with us and, and letting us know what they've done over the years and everything else. It's always so much fun to hear those. If you have a suggestion for a guest, send it to me at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com. That's how we got Denny. Denny was suggested by somebody, and I thank them so much for making that suggestion. And if you have a suggestion, send it to me. All right, that's it. That's a wrap for this week. So until next week, when we once again take you on screen and beyond, I'm Brian Zemrak. Take care.